Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. A Merry Christmas, Church. Well, my name is Mark, and I'm clearly going to be the least talented person to walk on this stage tonight. So if you're visiting, my name is Mark. I'm one of the uh, ministers here, and we're glad you're with us, that you've made worshiping Jesus a part of the most important weekend for us, and that is uh, Christmas, as families, as we gather, as we share. If you're visiting with your family or you're from the community, uh, we're glad you're with us here tonight. We want to tell you that we began a journey a few weeks ago uh, where we focused uh, six weeks ago on this journey of discovering in the Gospels, in the, the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who Jesus is. Every moment that's recorded, we want to savor. We want to learn about him. And we began the series six weeks ago so that this weekend we would be in the passage of Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible or an app on your phone or device that you'd like to turn to, we'll be in Luke 2 tonight. And we set the series to begin so that this weekend, we would be in the perfect text in Luke 2 for this journey. We know that Christmas is full of energy. There's children in the room. They're excited to get home and get at it. And uh, we realize there's a lot of expectations. Some will be met, some won't. It reminds me of a story. A food editor for a local newspaper had a cooking column And they had a local phone line or phone number that you could call in for cooking advice. And this uh, food critic or commentator uh, got a phone call from a newlywed wife. She explained her situation. They'd been married just a few weeks. Her in-laws were coming in for the holiday, and she had never really cooked a turkey before. So she said, would you tell me, how long does it take to cook a 22-pound turkey? And the food critic reached across her desk to grab the chart, and she said, just a minute. And the young lady said, thank you, and hung up. I'm pretty sure that's not the counsel she needed. And so tonight, as we gather for just a few moments together in worship, uh, I do ask that we would pause long enough to hear the whole counsel of God and not just those pieces that are convenient and fit in our schedule. Because Luke 2 tells us a lot about God. Uh, I've entitled this, and I expect a few eye rolls. I've entitled tonight's teaching, I'm Dreaming of a Right Christmas. It seemed appropriate to be a bit cliche when Christmas has become a bit cliche in our world. But I'd like us to be awakened to what's taking place. If you see what God does in Luke chapter 2, you'll know what makes Christmas right. So let's begin. I'm dreaming of a right Christmas where people let God use them. Where people like you and I find our place in his story. You see, in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Cornelius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, one of the most famous and well-known passages in all of Scripture. If you've been with us on this discovery of Jesus through the Gospels, you know that we've spent some time on Mary and Joseph. 
focusing in on the fact of what they were and what they were not. But let me catch you up quickly and just synchronize those two messages tonight. We found out that Mary and Joseph are nowhere educated. They have no advanced education, just basic primary reading and writing skills, possibly. Neither one of them are wealthy. Neither one of them had any power to protect themselves from the act of obedience that God expected of them. In other words, for a young girl to be unmarried and pregnant and for this man to take her as his wife when it's not his child, they had no means, no wealth, no education, no means to protect themselves. I'll have you notice that in Hebrews chapter 11, there's a great list of people of faith. Have you noticed that Mary and Joseph aren't there? They're not recognized as the heroes, as the epic characters. They're just simply... Two people who chose to do what God would ask them to do. They were God-fearing, God-loving, and God-obeying people. Mary staked her reputation and her life on God. And if you don't understand in that culture, for her to be pregnant outside of marriage, they very easily could have taken her into the city center and stoned her to death for her act of impropriety. Joseph staked his pride and his trust in God. It took probably every fiber of his body to believe that this was God's child and not some other man's. And then if you haven't noticed, God staked everything on this couple. He gave them his only begotten son. So to be used by God takes some preparation before God asks us to obey and when he asks us to obey and then even after he asks us to obey. God uses people who display faith, not people who display potential. Joseph and Mary would not have been picked out of a crowd for such a task, but God chose them. Dwight Moody once said, We may easily be too big for God to use us, but we will never be too small for God to use us. I'm dreaming of a right Christmas where simple people let God use them in powerful ways. I also, when I think of what Christmas is made right by in Luke chapter 2, I believe it's where worship is spontaneous and searching where knowing who God is and what God's going to do causes us to pursue things. Let's look at verses 8 through 18 of Luke 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Shepherds, many of you have them sitting on an end table or on the mantle of your fireplace, these cute little clean shepherds that sit outside the nativity scene, and their faces are like little angels and their hands are clean, but that's not the people God delivered his message to. Do you know there's only one invitation in all of scripture to come see the baby? There's only one invitation, and it's offered to these dirty, outdoor, rough, 
uneducated, poor, and socially outcast people called shepherds. Are you seeing a theme here? Because I am. God uses people we wouldn't use. God picks people like us who nobody else would pick. 2,000 years ago, faithful Jews were warned by their rabbis not to take on one of six professions. One of those professions was a shepherd. Shepherds were not allowed to give testimony in court. They were unreliable. Shepherds were not allowed to enter into places of worship. Shepherds could, go, could not go to the temple or go to the synagogue. Why? Because they were constantly unclean. Their jobs required that they dealt with the things that sheep produce and goats produce that you're not supposed to get into. And so they were always unclean. Thus, they did not have the purification period by which they could go with others in worship. Shepherds were trespassers, known. They took their flocks wherever there was something for them to eat, and they would often cross boundary lines, and there would be legal disputes. That's why they were untrustworthy. Shepherds were also considered most likely to be thieves. Historians tell us that it was shepherds that most likely ran the black markets around Jerusalem. Shepherds were despised. And there goes silly God sending his angels to a bunch of socially outcast people at night guarding their flocks. And they announced through song the Annunciation Chorus. The greatest wonder of God's Christmas gift is that he seems to have given it to the wrong people. He gave it to people who could not show the power. Now, if you and I were running the world, which is a frightening thought, and we were going to announce that the king of kings had arrived, wouldn't we go to the Romans first? Wouldn't we go to the seat of power? Wouldn't we talk to kings and governors and magistrates, even Caesar himself, and drop in on Caesar and say, you're done, buddy, the real king's here. Or maybe we would have gone to the Jewish religious leaders, the priests, the rabbis, the synagogue officials. Maybe the Sanhedrin itself, the Supreme Court of the Jews. We'd have walked in with a great plan. We would announce to them, you're done, he's here. Or military leaders or the wealthy. But these Romans and Jews I've mentioned didn't want him. They wouldn't be excited about this. And as Elijah mentioned a few moments earlier, God saw our need and sent it to the people who realized their need. These poor shepherds, social religious outcasts, received the announcement. Why did God do this? Because God's love is available to those who will accept it. It's available to all men and women, but not all of us are open to it. Our own power, our own position, our own place. And the angels told them not to be afraid, which is an interesting statement. It said, go to Bethlehem and search out the newborn. He'll be sleeping in a feeding trough. That's the one you'll know it's him. He's going to be wrapped like any other baby in, in little strips of cloth, but he's going to be in a feeding trough, and you'll know this is the king of kings. And then, suddenly, thousands of angels burst in the sky and began to sing, Glory to God in the highest, peace among all men on the earth who please God. He's here. And so they left. They obeyed God, and they went searching for their king. Matthew chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 12 is the other side of the story. And, and these men are different than the shepherds. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 7. 
Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Matthew chapter 2 takes place most likely two plus years after the shepherds appeared. But these wise men, these astrologers, these magi, were so different than the shepherds. They were educated. They were wealthy. They had great position in society. But they saw a star in the sky. And that star spoke to them. It was a sign of a king. And they pursued that. Even though they were royalty in and of themselves, when the, when the skies proclaim that God is doing something, you probably should follow the star. And they went to Jerusalem. Well, why did they go to Jerusalem? Because... The truth of it is, that's where the king of the Jews should be, in the capital of the Jews. But when they get to Jerusalem, they meet King Herod and they realize he's not it, that the power of man is not what they were pursuing, and they realize the prophecies they were told to go look in Bethlehem. Can you imagine the disappointment when they left Jerusalem and went 20 or so miles away to a little town of Bethlehem, no celebrity, no status, just a simple little town? A no-name town looking for a no-name couple and trying to find the king of kings. You see, for many of us, when we think we should be worshiping in a palace, God may be calling us to worship in a stable, in a home, in a place that's simple. For many of us, we desire to, to be in the big, in the loud, in the, in the place where everyone's noticing, when God may actually be calling us to the most simple of places where the most powerful king of kings reigns. The Magi followed the star and realizing that Herod had an agenda that they didn't appreciate, they went the other direction and they returned home. But they left their gifts, gifts that signified deity. For many of us, when God disappoints us and he doesn't do what we want him to do, we'll stop worshiping. We'll pause and say, well, this isn't the way I want it to happen. This isn't the way it should be. And so instead of going to Jerusalem to find a king and saying, well, if he's not here, I'm out, they went to the tiny little town of Bethlehem and they left their gifts to acknowledge that God can do what God wants to do. Are you seeing the theme of Christmas? Mary and Joseph aren't that spectacular. The shepherds aren't that spectacular. And Bethlehem's not that spectacular, yet the most spectacular thing that ever happened to us happened in the most unspectacular places. There's a reward for searching out this child wherever he is. It may not be where we wanted him to be, and he may not do everything we thought he would, but when we search him and find him like the shepherds and like the wise men, we worship. So I'm dreaming of a right Christmas, just like Luke chapter 2 where people let God use them, where worship breaks out with sincerity, and lastly, where it all centers around Christ. And I know that seems strange that we should actually have to be reminded that Christmas is about the birthday of Jesus, but we have to be reminded that Christmas is about the birthday of Jesus. That's why I love this weekend. I know for some people, having you know, Christmas on a Sunday is inconvenient. I think it's poetic. The day of worship, the day of gathering. So this weekend, we have gathered 
around this central theme. In Luke chapter 2, verse 19, it says, But Mary treasured up all these things, and she pondered them in her heart. Which is funny. Did that really have to be written? Name a mother who doesn't remember the big moments with their child. The shepherds, verse 20, returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they were told. And then in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, it speaks about the wise men. When the Magi saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Mary treasured how right Christmas was. The shepherds treasured how right Christmas was. And the wise men treasured how right the God of Christmas was. So when we dream of a right Christmas, it's really the choices you and I make. I had to read a book in college, and I want to stress that I had to read it to pass the class. It was Henry David Thoreau's uh, Walden. And Thoreau, Thoreau was a man who did something amazing. He went in a pond, and he submerged himself to his eyes, and he breathed through a straw, and he wanted to see what a day in the life of a frog was like. And I thought, yes, you have to make me read this book. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever... I know that the literary will say it's a great book. I'm sure it was for them. But when I read that book, I thought, what a ridiculous thing to waste the day sitting in the water up to your eyes so you could experience what a frog was like. And when I made that comment, my literature professor looked at me and said these words, because he's the one in a Bible college who made me read it. He said these words, God did the same thing. And I felt dumber than I was by not reading the book. God did the same thing, didn't he? The God of the universe who had no limitations limited himself by coming in the form of a human body and living until he died on this earth so he could experience the life of a frog. So he could experience what it was to be hungry and tired, rejected, to suffer, to to live without all of everything at his disposal. And that's what the God did. That's how he could relate to us. The incarnation is not just poetry. The incarnation is one of the fundamental facts that God had to come to earth and dwell among us so that he could die through Jesus a physical death, not a a poetic, symbolic death, but a literal death. Well, let me take you back to 1809. Well, over 200 years ago in 1809, mankind was following this march of Napoleon through Europe. And according to historians, it was all anybody in the world was talking about. What was France going to do in this great battle against all the forces that they were going against? And in 1809, while everyone was focusing on the battles, babies were born that year. Babies were born all throughout the globe. Significant babies. But the world was focused on battles. In 1809, babies quickly snuck into our world, and there were men like William Gladstone, future prime minister of Britain, was born in Liverpool. Alfred Lord Tennyson, an English poet, was born in Somersby. Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Massachusetts. Charles Darwin made his debut at Shrewsbury. Abraham Lincoln drew his first breath in Kentucky. Felix Mendelssohn in Hamburg. But nobody was thinking about the babies born in the midst of the battles that were being faced. But let me ask you a question. Which of the battles of 1809 have captured the world's attention more than the babies born in 1809? Think about how easily we can be distracted. That when God says, just a minute, pause and hear 
we think, I don't have time. There are battles. But it's the baby born at Christmas that the world will talk about for eternity. While the battles that take our minds away from what this day means to each of us, those battles will pass away and Jesus will be the victor. Where do you find God on Christmas? How do you make it a right Christmas? Well, you find him in the arms of a young girl who risked her life, in the presence of an adopted father who risked his pride, in the stunned and flattered worship of the lowliest and richest of all society. We dream of a right Christmas because he entered our world like we did, so we can have victory over the world like he did. So we are here tonight to remember that a right Christmas takes the time to savor and adore Jesus himself. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com